I V M. So it's been another great week on IVM, and we're hoping that you enjoy all of the podcasts that we're being able to get out to you. As always, if you're not following us, please do follow us on IVM Podcasts on all the social media platforms. This week on Keeping It Queer, Naveen spoke to Ankit Das Gupta, the social media content manager at Mirror Now. On Who's Your Mommy, Veda discusses mom bods and the toll a pregnancy can take on women. On Vartalav, Akash and Naveen exchange stories with boys from the Bombay Hemp Company. On Pargati, Pawan and Hamsini are joined by Dr. Shambhavi Nayak to discuss the Nipah virus and discuss the nitty-gritties of this new disease. On Simplified, Naren and Chak break down the differences between schizophrenia and split personality on a shorty. It's been a really, really great week and I hope that you're going to listen to all of these shows or at least some of them. In the meantime, let me get you on to this one. The rupee tumbles to 68 against the dollar. Will we breach the 70 mark this year? And does a weak rupee mean a weak economy? Don't panic, says Anupam Manur, our guest this evening. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly talk show on economics, public policy and international relations. We are your hosts, Hamsini Hariharan and Pavan Srinath. We associate a lot of national pride when it comes to the strength of the Indian rupee. Most important currencies that we know of have higher values than the rupees. you know any of the dollars from the united states to singapore to australia the british pound the euro the dirham especially when an indian goes abroad the exchange rate can be galling anupam manur is an economist and he is my colleague at the takshashila institution in past episodes of the pragati podcast he has explained the gdp and economic growth interest rates banking the goods and services tax and a lot more Today he is back on the show to talk about exchange rates and why the rupee is now 68 against the dollar. Why don't we talk about mental illness? For that matter, we don't even talk about emotional wellness. And if we can't talk about either of these basic, very basic aspects of being human, what do we do when we just feel like something's not right? Hi, I'm Zain and I'm Avanti and this is Marbles Lost and Found, the show where we invite conversations about mental health and illness and just get people to talk about it because it's okay to do so. Catch Marbles Lost and Found every Tuesday on the IVM app, website or anywhere you get your podcasts from. The Indian rupee fell below 68 rupees to the US dollar in May 2018. This is the lowest value that this has been in years. Every time this happens there is somewhat of a panic and we seem to associate the value of the rupee with national pride so anupam what's happening and uh, should we be concerned what's happening is that for the first time in 18 months the rupee has breached the the 68 rupees to the dollar mark and uh, should we be concerned the short answer is no but i think we can go into that slightly later on in detail Okay then why are people concerned what does this do to the indian economy when the rupee depreciates against the us dollar it means that your imports are going to get much more costlier because you'll have to pay up a lot more rupees in exchange for 1 dollar and on the other hand your exports are supposed to become more competitive in the export market uh the troubling thing for india however is that we are you know we are not reliant as much on exports we import far more than we export so it's going to negatively affect the indian economy can you elaborate on that right so since we import a lot of our day to day goods from uh, other countries 
this would mean that our daily consumption levels will, uh, I mean, the price of our daily consumption basket would actually go up. So there would be an increased pressure on inflation in the Indian economy. So that's what it would mean for, you know, you and I, uh, who are in no way actually importing or exporting, but we do consume goods which come from all over the world. And that is going to be a bit more expensive than what it is today. So do you mean to say that if our imports were not so high as they are right now, at least compared to our exports, then our exchange rate would not be suffering. Is this that imbalance between our imports and exports that's driving this, the rupee falling? I think trade is just one aspect of the number of things that determine the exchange rate of any country. And uh, it is one of the big components, definitely. What would essentially happen is that if you are importing more, then you have to give up your rupees and buy dollars in order to actually pay for the imports, right? So there's an increase. So uh, help me figure this out. Uh, I understand the buying and selling of goods, right? We're buying cars from Korea. We're buying, uh, I don't know, some services from the United States. I get that. Uh, what do you mean by buying and selling rupees and dollars? Uh, okay. Who does this buying and selling? Let, let me, let's take a very simple scenario. You are a manufacturer of automobiles in the US okay. and I want to buy a car from you, right? And so you're willing to sell it to me. But what you're not willing to do is accept rupees in okay. terms of payments because you can't actually, you know, use that rupees in the US. So you want dollars. So what would I have to do is that I have to give up my rupees in exchange for the dollars. And there's a particular rate at which that happens at what the exchange rate is. And uh, with the now newly acquired dollars, I'm going to pay you for it. So that is the, you know, buying and selling of uh, currency. Basically, you're saying that every time there are some goods that are being traded, there's an equal volume of the two currencies that are also being exchanged. Yes, in, in value terms. Okay. Uh, and, and so you can imagine now, I, I've just given you the most simplest of uh, the scenarios, but you can imagine all kinds of other scenarios where uh, trade happens between two individuals from different countries. So, for example, if I go to the US and actually work, then they'll have to pay me in dollars. But then if I have to send that home, I have to get it converted to rupees, right? right. So then I'm demanding rupees in exchange, you know, and I'm giving up dollars to get those rupees. Uh, or let's say I'm going on a, a trip to Europe, then I'll have to give up my rupees in order to get euros, right? I'm selling rupees, buying euros, uh, going into Europe and actually uh, purchasing whatever items I want. So it's only individuals who are buying and selling uh, currencies like this? Not really. This is, at the, again, the most basic level. But uh, the forex market is actually one of the the biggest market, financial market in, in volume terms. Uh, just to give you an idea, by the way, in 2013, that's the latest figure I have, unfortunately. But $4 trillion uh, is the volume of transactions that happened in a single day. Now, that is more than all the stock exchanges in the world put together in a whole year. So that gives you an idea of the volume of transactions that takes place in the currency exchange market. So who are the main players? Uh, individuals, the kind of examples I was giving at, actually plays a very small role, as you can imagine. Uh, but it's mainly banks which trade on the interbank market uh, for foreign exchange. There are mutual funds, hedge funds, etc., who also trade in currency. Now, that is for speculative purposes. Uh, and, and, of course, individuals, as I mentioned. What about central banks? Central banks actually don't speculate on the currency. They do buy and sell dollars or your know, foreign exchange, but that is mainly to steady the ship back home. 
but i'll get to that slightly later on. okay so you're saying that essentially okay look at what's happened over the last month or two right the rupee has been falling that means that more people have been buying dollars and people have been trying to sell off their rupees is exactly. that what's happening absolutely yes. so the okay. demand for dollars so uh, you have to understand the currency or or uh, foreign exchange exactly as you would understand any other good or service if the demand is higher than the supply then the price of it goes up and vice versa so here since people are importing more they need more dollars so they're demanding dollars and the supply of dollars is being constant let's say so which is why the price of dollars has gone up in relation to the rupee or you could look at it exactly the other way around since people have to sell rupees in order to get dollars the supply of rupees is more than the demand for it and that's why the price of rupee has gone down okay so why are people selling rupees and buying dollars yeah so let's start again with the most obvious example that we spoke about until now which is trade uh, india has had a persistent current account deficit there's nothing new by the way but again that adds to the entire uh, scenario and of late especially in the last 6 or 8 months there's been uh, continued kind of you know pressure on our current account so we've been importing more than what we normally do and we have not been exporting as much so export growth is sluggish in india so that's let's let's count that off as as the first reason as to why the rupee is falling okay so sort of just so that i'm clear the current account is like a balance of all the buying and selling of indian rupees versus other things right so only for goods and services okay so it's goods as well as say software services yeah. and so on yeah. does it include things like um, remittances and so on remittances it does but it does not include fdi or fii I'll, that is a separate thing that comes okay. under the capital account okay okay so that's money that's sort of permanently moving yeah to the country all right so uh, we have a deficit which means that our uh, we know that our exports are not doing well they have not been doing well for the last two years at least at least and uh, so our imports were okay because oil prices were also low right yeah that beautifully ties into our next bit which is the rising oil prices okay uh, oil prices have now touched uh, 80 dollars and i mean uh, hovering around there at least okay and this sudden kind of spike in oil prices means all our imports are now much more expensive okay right? because oil forms a big part of our import basket but but isn't this like a vicious cycle so our oil prices grow up globally which means that our import bill goes up because our import bill goes up but exports don't go up our currency value depreciates which means that the import value goes up even more in rupee terms right yeah so the way out for most countries is because your currency depreciates you would be able to take advantage of that by exporting more okay right and and that is how you actually compensate for it and it's supposed to be a, a a thing that reaches equilibrium by itself right because your you know your currency goes down then but you export more and again it'll appreciate in value and it'll reach this equilibrium point india of course is a different story right hang on, hang on. so in this equilibrium point it means that uh, at that point the current account deficit will be zero not zero but okay. the deficit is not growing okay right it can, it can be a, you can have a uh a low level equilibrium or a high level equilibrium you know that can differ but at least it's not so the current account deficit is not growing at a rapid pace so that means we shouldn't care about this uh, deficit at all just allow the rupee to just change in value and then we'll be okay the problem with that is of course because we can't take advantage of this by exporting more right um 
because our industry is not just well equipped to deal with it. I mean, our, we've got extremely low investment uh, demand in the country. We've got the twin balance sheet problem. Banks don't have money. People are not investing enough, etc. I mean, that's an entirely different uh, <laughs> problem beast to deal with. Um, so if you have a healthy economy, lots of investment, everything... Allowing your exchange rate to just go up and down as the market goes is a good thing. Is a good thing, and in fact, most countries try to depreciate their currency deliberately. Okay. I mean, most countries would want a weaker currency so that they can export more. Right. Uh, but just because we can't, uh, you know, take advantage of it, and uh, on the other hand, we actually import a lot. This is going to hurt us. Okay. So walk us through this whole exchange rate, right? So we've been talking about uh, how trade affects us. Is this the only thing? So not at all. So yeah, uh, we spoke about rising oil prices as one of the more proximate causes and more realistic cause than just saying, you know, overall trade. Uh, but then you have also, you know, factors which are, uh, you know, beyond India's control, to, so to speak. Uh, for example, FIIs, that is foreign institutional investment, which is short term capital flows into the country. What does this mean? Uh, people abroad are buying stocks in India and then they're, selling them. They're buying equity and debt, essentially. So they're buying Indian stocks or they're buying government debt or companies' debt, right? Uh, short-term lending you, is one way of thinking of it. So that has been, you know, India has been the darling for foreign investors, especially for institutional investment. And, uh, and it's been kind of helping us maintain the steady state equilibrium for quite some time. So and is this why usually our stock markets are booming? Yeah, and, okay. and which is why we normally don't care whether, you know, we have a current account deficit or not. We can keep importing much more than we export as long as we get FIIs. Okay. And because that helps steady the ship. Uh, but what has happened is that in the last few months, in the last couple of months, uh, FIs have been pulling out. Okay. And the rate at which it's coming in has also gone down. In fact, just in the month of April and May, uh, $6 billion has been pulled out of the Indian economy of FII. And why is that happening? Why are FIIs pulling out? Um, couple of reasons. Again, the first reason is slightly speculative, but this is what I found in the commentary, uh, is that people are losing confidence in the Indian political economy, uh, especially after the Karnataka elections and heading up to 2019 elections. There's a lot of speculation and, and it's a risky kind of uh, environment to be investing in. So this now. is the animal spirits territory, this, this right? Is sentiment. Oh, there's sentiment, oh, Modi ji will do something or yeah. some other thing is great in India. India is a demographic dividend. It's all that yes. hawa. Yeah, you can't really quantify any of this. You can't really pinpoint and say, okay, this is the reason. But I think the more accurate uh, and reliable kind of uh, reason would be the fact that US is actually doing really well. Okay. Uh, and uh, remember that when the global economy is not doing so well relative to India, and you know India is still growing at eight percent, whereas US, let's say, is growing at one percent or going through a depression. There's still a lot of capital there. There's still a lot of money there. So all of that comes pouring into India. Okay. But when the globe starts doing well relative to India, and India because of you know demonetization and GST etc cetera, etc cetera, has been kind of on a downward growth path, uh, the money starts going back, and that is what is happening now. Now US has been actually growing strong, right? Irrespective of the political developments there, and uh, for the first time in in quite some time, the US inflation rate has actually breached the two percent mark, which okay. is what they're comfortable with. Okay. Anupam, wait. Why is 2% inflation a good thing? I mean, isn't no inflation the best? I mean, I don't want my prices to increase. Why is that a good thing? 
not really uh, this is going into actually expectations of the people right if if there is a positive inflation number then there is demand for your goods and services tomorrow right uh, so there's more that, demand more demand right so there's expectations that things will be better tomorrow so people actually buy and sell more things tomorrow in deflationary territory people expect things to be worse tomorrow Okay. Right? So everyone wants to actually save up their money, not consume, not invest, and so on. So it, it's to do with again a bit of sentiment, a bit of behavioral uh, part as well. But this is what we have seen. I mean, take a look at uh, eurozone for example. People would think deflation is a good thing, but uh, the eurozone has been in a slump because they've got negative inflation or deflation. So you're on. saying inflation is basically an indicator of a healthy economy. Yes. Uh, and and it's also closely tied with growth. As long as you have positive growth, you'll also have a bit of inflation. The two can't be really, you know, separated in that way. Okay. Most so, of the time. So now come back to the US. The US economy is doing well. Yeah, it has a positive inflation number and a positive growth number. Yeah, and a positive growth number. And since it's breached that critical two percent mark, that is the mark which the central bank of uh, the Federal Reserve of US is uh, comfortable with, they're going to start raising interest rates. Okay. Right. And that's what. the market expects now if the us raises so, interest hang on. rate just yeah. to complete this this is the interest rate that the federal reserve or the central bank uh, charges to lend money to banks to commercial banks okay yes. so whatever the public sees is usually that plus something that plus something okay. and the commercial bank will add uh, x number of basis points sure. to it so if the the federal reserve raises interest rates then people investors who again let's say buy out an fd in the us starts getting higher returns so now instead of depositing here everyone will actually rush back to the us and this is typically what happens each time a big country like the us uh, is you know when there are expectations that they're going to raise interest rates the funds from all the emerging markets go back to the us and this is typically what happened in 2013 the last time when we saw the rupee breaching the 68 69 mark in a famous episode called the temper tantrum okay <laughs> but we can leave that out for now all right so anupam you're telling us that um, the rupee is getting devalued against the dollar one because we have a trade deficit yeah and two because the us economy and maybe some other parts of the global economy are doing better today relative to india so a lot of money is leaving the system so the fii's are leaving india yeah Okay, I mean, and just to note, FDIs are still flowing in reasonably well in yeah. India. All right, uh, is there any other reason why this is happening? Yeah, finally, the third one is that there's uh, there's quite a big inflation differential between India and major trading partners. Uh, so, on an average, India's inflation is about three percent higher than most of the uh, the partners we. you know that we normally trade with uh, for example as we just spoke us breached the 2% mark whereas we are closer to the 5% mark okay uh, and this inflation differential causes money to actually move out of the country with the higher inflation so let me explain why in in as simple terms as possible um, if you have inflate i mean you know let's say a country with 5% inflation and you're investing in that country which means that in a year your assets go down in value by 5% right right whereas in the us it's going to go down by 2% so and if the returns on the other hand is not going to be as good as you thought higher than 5% then you're going to lose out money so you'd rather take money out of india and go to a country with lower inflation so that's one of the reasons why uh, fis are also going out of india okay so anupam i think back during the days of british rule in india 
the Indian rupee was just pegged to the UK pound, right? right. So if a pound is something, uh, say 80 rupees makes a pound or 20 rupees makes a pound, some number like that. Uh, I know that that was a different arrangement, but can't we just say today that the Indian rupee will be 60 rupees to the dollar flat and we'll just stay there? You can, but then you will set the entire world in shock. Uh, okay. Because we've kind of agreed to be on a uh, on a relatively freely floating exchange rate system, okay. uh, which is one of the many different ways in which you can arrange your exchange rates. Uh, and uh, we've, we've decided that we're going to be, you know, uh, relatively based on market values rather than the central bank actually arranging uh, or fixing the rate of the Indian rupee with any other of our trading partners. Okay, so tell us how these various exchange rate systems work. Uh, what has been the norm uh, a while ago? What is the norm today? Right, so the IMF, which mainly deals with exchange rate systems, has about eight different classifications of exchange rate arrangements. Uh, I'm going to skip over all the ones which are rare and so on. So I'm just going to give you a brief idea of, of the different ones with hopefully some interesting examples. Let's start with a country not having any kind of legal tender of its own. Okay. Right? So there are some countries which don't have a legal tender of its own. It uses mainly, I mean, the examples are when it uses the US dollar. Right. So that's called dollarization of the economy. Okay. Right? Uh, so, for example, Ecuador, Panama, and uh, El Salvador has no currency of its own, but it uses the US dollar. But I think more recently, you can think of the example of Zimbabwe. Okay. When the Zimbabwean dollar uh, went for a toss, you had hyperinflation and it was basically worthless paper. They finally had the good sense to, you know, completely, uh, you know, remove their currency from circulation. And they've decided to use the dollar instead. And, and that's what they've been doing. Okay. So, so how is, does this work? I mean, clearly in Zimbabwe's case, people didn't trust their own money, but they trusted the value of the dollar and therefore they could conduct trade, buy things, sell things and so on. Uh, but what does that mean for the Zimbabwean economy or for the Panamian economy when they do this? It It is actually, a, in a way, a good thing for them because it offers stability. And okay. one of the great things that you can hope for is stability. And especially if you're trading with the US dollar, I mean, with US as the main thing. So forget Zimbabwe, let's say Panama or uh, El Salvador. Its main trading partner is the US. Everything it buys is from the US. So now you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, exchange rate fluctuations because you use the US dollar as well. So it, it's almost like internal trade for them. And that works very well for them. Now, this does not work for, you know, most other economies. But for small countries which are around, you know, a really large country, this is a very good arrangement. What if India decides to do this? I mean, just hypothetically, what, what would happen? We would completely lose our monetary policy autonomy. So we can't set the interest rates that we want. If okay. by, by using another country's currency, you're also implicitly using their monetary policy. Okay. Which is not very good for us because uh, the US is a low inflation, low growth economy, whereas India is a high inflation, high growth economy. There's no way we can import the monetary policy of the US. All right. All right. So then going on to the second kind of arrangement. So uh, this is a fixed exchange rate. So here's where, like you were saying, the central bank basically decides, okay, this is the rate at which my currency is going to uh, trade with another currency. Right. And uh, within which also there's, you know, a really hard peg, uh, as you call. So you hard, uh, hard peg is a definite kind of fixed arrangement with another currency. Uh, examples of which would be, let's say, Bhutan. Okay. Bhutan has a one is to one peg with the Indian rupee. 
right? The Bhutanese Nugultrum is traded one is to one with the Indian rupee, and it has been so for the last fifty years or so. Okay. Right. Uh, or the Nepali uh, rupee as well with the Indian rupee. Right? Is, doesn't that essentially mean that the Bhutanese rupee uh, follows Indian monetary policy? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, so the interest rate Reserve Bank of India sets is exactly the kind of interest rates that followed in Bhutan as well. Well, right. So that's a but hard then, pick. But then supposing we do this, but uh, Bhutan starts printing more money, is that allowed? And if so, what happens? It it actually can't uh, suddenly start printing more money because then the the prices of everything in Bhutan would skyrocket. Right. Right. Uh, and they lose. And the way that they would control it is usually using interest rates. But now they can't because they use the Indian rupee, right, as a okay. hard peg. So that's where the constraint lies. And there's there's the impossible trilemma in exchange rates, which you know you can either have uh, autonomy over the interest rates you set. Or a fixed exchange rate, or a capital account convertibility. You have to choose between the right because extreme volatility will will cause uncertainty in in your business uh, decisions, right? So then the RBI says, okay, we're just going to steady the ship, but not really control where the final direction of of the rupee. So basically, RBI is a like a market player in this. The RBI yes. also buys and sells rupees. Exactly, and that's how it steadies the ship. Right? Okay, and so, so this is what the importance of the forex uh, reserves are that RBI has this war chest that it can play uh, the market with. Precisely. So if if the rupee suddenly stumbles, right, uh, and and from sixty eight, let's say tomorrow, due to some unforeseen reason, it it starts heading towards sixty nine. Now that is when the RBI will actually step in and say such a sudden jump. Oh, one rupee jump is huge, by the way, in forex market. Uh, so such a sudden jump will cause disasters to the economy. So the RBI steps in and says, "Okay, I'm going to steady the ship now." So what it would do is it it would start selling dollars and buy rupees instead, right? And that would kind of steady the ship. So uh, remember the demand and supply that we spoke about. So this is basically now you're inducing artificial kind of demand for the Indian rupee and lowering the demand for uh, the US dollar. And and it it will do this at a huge volume, right? Uh, because it's the biggest market player that way, so it it can do it in such a way that the price actually gets determined, and it'll steady the ship. Now, if it takes another, let's say, a month or two, to fall by one rupee, it's fine with it. It should be at least in in theory. Okay. Right? So the RBI cares about the speed of change rather than the the ultimate direction. Change. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, the RBI has basically now I think about four hundred billion dollars that it can play with. Wow. Uh, which is which we are in safe territory. So uh, the first question that you asked should we be worried? The the answer was no because you have enough forex you know reserves to actually tide over whatever uh, short term volatility is. Okay, Anupam, I have a question. The sure. RBI's war chest at one point wasn't it filled with like these huge gold ingots? Yes, <laughs> and that was an entirely different era, and it had a extremely different kind of exchange rate arrangement. Uh, none of the floating stuff that we are speaking about. So, uh, it would be fascinating to just go back in time and see how this has evolved. Uh, if you guys have the patience, yeah, let's bring it on. All right, so let's. How far back do you want to go? Two hundred BC. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm going to cut that short. Um, let's say you know, in the around that time, about two hundred BC, you actually had gold coins in circulation. Okay. And until the kings and queens prevailed over the earth, uh, until let's say let's take a huge leap until the eighteen hundreds, right? Uh, where 
you had gold coins you had silver coins you had copper coins and the value of the currency was nothing but the value of right. the the metal so some precious commodity yeah. that people could control the supply of right exactly so uh, that was all hunky dory until then and in 1816 the bank of england actually produced you know they had banknotes in circulation but it was in 1816 uh, precisely when the the central bank of england tied the currency note to gold okay and since then began a very intimate relationship of currency and gold okay uh, i remember uh, something about old currency also being like ious right so you sort of write people like a check saying i owe you 100 dollars and you give that and that sort of acts as currency uh, it was not i owe you 100 dollars but the 100 dollars itself was nothing but an iou of x amount of gold okay right so the the paper notes which were there in uh, in, in circulation was nothing but ious of gold Okay. Which meant that it was. So if I had one, a one pound note, then it would mean that I owe you ten grams of gold, for example. For example, I can tell you precise dollar values if you want. Uh, one ounce of gold would give you about twenty dollars. Okay. Now that was a precise arrangement that was there. So basically, whoever was making these notes, the central bank, would have that much gold to back whoever comes and says, "Okay, give me my." money's worth exactly so now we speak about the forex reserves in in central banks back then the reserves were all kept as you rightly mentioned hamsini in in gold at which meant that at any point of time you could take the bank note to the central bank and say i want this redeemed uh, for gold and so, they would have to give you so if you gave 20 dollars they'd have to give you one ounce of gold so which is why you had generation upon generation of movies with attacks on fort knox trying to steal all the gold over there and exactly. then get away exactly exactly all right this is called the, the the gold standard right and this was in existence until the first world war right and in between the us came on board officially and and they set their own exchange rate many countries and the entire sterling area all the you know countries of the Uh, british empire where whether they liked it or not also on a gold standard now and at the same exchange rate that the british pound was on okay and uh, in in 1913 uh, is funny uh, that is when the you know the beginning of the first world war and uh, many countries started saying that you know gold is too restrictive in nature because they wanted active expansion of the military and to rely on how much gold you have was not going to just cut it for them so that is when they started altering the exchange rate of their currency right so if for example one uh, to take your example i mean if one pound gave you x amount of gold they would reduce it by 20 or 30% just so that you could print more notes now and and use that to you know have a bigger army so, so it didn't matter how much gold they had they just manipulated the rate so that they would have more money in the yeah. system so this was the first breach of the kind of the unbreakable bond between gold and currency and this happened first in around 1908 1909 but truly it happened in 1913 when the the us basically you know but is, does that really do anything i mean you print more notes but the value of each note has gone down so isn't there just inflation but that takes quite a while to realize okay and uh, you know let's say a year or two for that inflation to truly come down but by that time you've already raised an army and you've done what you have to do okay. and so the short term gain is is what you want so our uh, the way our currencies work changed because of war 
yeah <laughs> okay so we spoke about in another earlier episode about gdp and the first world war so now we are doing exchange rates right yeah so in 1914 1915 when the first world war was truly in progress a uh, lot of these countries i mean almost all the countries broke its uh, tie with gold temporarily and they just went mad printing money right uh, let's say 1919 world war 1 ended and the british promptly went back to the gold standard but in a slightly different flavor called the gold bullion standard okay. never mind the difference but it was a lame attempt at trying to keep you know the gold standard alive okay uh, and uh, let's jump a few years ahead great depression hits in 1929 and uh, the countries are still on some form of uh, you know the gold bullion standard and again the same realization happens that gold the you know you can't rely on gold and the new supply of gold for printing money or carrying out you know big fiscal plans so because the idea would be if you wanted to grow this watch as the only thing you could do is mine more mine more or and buy that, more huh? or yeah buy from someone else right uh, but you know how can you rely on actually finding a gold deposit suddenly mm-hmm. you couldn't and and that was a that was turning out to be a big constraint on on the expansion of most economies Is that also why the gold rushes were also in the era when the gold standard was active? Yeah, there was active exploration of gold and and also a lot of times backed up by countries. I mean, countries would go searching for gold just so that they could expand their economy. Right? Otherwise it's very restrictive in nature. Okay. So, so each time if you look at global GDP and there've been estimations of it, you'd find that each time that uh, you know, somewhere gold was found in in quite a large amount uh, you know, deposits. uh you'd find global gdp suddenly jumping up okay <laughs> oh so the finite supply of gold had a direct link with the global gdp exactly yeah okay yeah that does sound restrictive right? yeah I mean, the gdp can grow because of lots of productivity increases you can have productivity increase you can have innovations and so on but it was just not possible when you were on a gold standard all right so what came next so in the height of the depression 1931 uh great britain finally said okay forget this we're going to leave the gold standard the or what they were following as a gold bullion standard uh, about 1932 1933 uh, us didn't really leave the gold standard but remember i said that you know an ounce of gold was worth 20 dollars they changed that to 35 dollars just so that they could print more money so this was old school devaluation of currency yes it was an old school devaluation of currency but with respect to gold and uh, and slowly they started i mean with various other acts they started you know delinking gold and and the currency so for example uh, until that time an individual could hold at any point of time either gold or currency okay uh, but then actually the us bought in a law which says that you couldn't hold gold as a bullion you could only hold it for jewelry purposes but not in you know in ingots or bars okay oh that was made illegal yeah that was made illegal uh, at the height of the depression just so that again convert that to money easier to spend inflationary goes back into the economy goes back into the economy and so on that was one way of uh, you know priming the system so uh, jumping a few years ahead to the next big event in human history which is the start of the second world war uh, and a curious thing happens here the us economy is now gotten out of the depression and it's actually doing quite well and experiencing massive productivity increases the new deal has worked in some sort of way and the rest of europe is you know actually getting into uh, you know into a war so what europe does is it starts shipping out gold to the us in large numbers and buying products from the us 
right? And the US is supplying many countries in in the war. It's actually neutral at that point. It doesn't care. It's you know give, giving selling to Germany, selling to every other country, right? Whoever is willing to buy, and the gold is. All of the gold from Europe is heading towards the U.S., so that's one major, you know, play at hand here. And uh, and this comes into play when you know when the the World War ends in 1944. You have, uh, you know, there's some kind of peace treaty, and they want to set up a new exchange rate system, right? So uh, that is when you have the big Bretton Woods conference, and in the Bretton Woods conference, you have basically you know two plans. Uh, one from the british side which says that we should have uh, an international currency and the us side which says no no let's use the dollar as the international currency and the dollar will be backed by gold since it has the highest amount of gold in the country right and uh, because of their pure muscle power by then the us wins and now us dollar becomes the most uh, it becomes a global reserve currency so uh, countries are no longer backed by gold but they're backed by the us dollar and the us dollar is backed by gold so there's an indirect arrangement there and this is called the bretton woods system okay and uh, so even now the dollar is the global currency global it, reserve yes, currency yes it's still the global reserve currency but there's a curious thing that happens of course uh, after the bretton woods system is set up now every country is still on a fixed exchange rate with the dollar so india was for example except for probably the soviet union and the other side of the iron curtain yeah they uh, they were doing some other kind of funny stuff but it was backed by gold still right okay but most of the world is tied to the the us dollar india is tied to the pound in the beginning and the pound is tied to the dollar so it we had an even more indirect link uh, but at one point by the way in 1950s early 1951 1952 the rupee was stronger than the dollar just as a trivia point okay uh and this gets cited by people online saying oh we should go back to that the glory day. days yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. Well, when I, the indian economy was doing so well right? yeah exactly right i mean yeah. so uh and, and post world war right there's rapid reconstruction happening in europe the marshall plan actually helps and as part of the marshall plan by the way uh, is that okay the us will is going to give you know the entire reconstruction money fund for reconstruction and so on but one condition was that they had to all the countries in europe had to open up their markets for trade Okay. So, which meant more gold went from Europe towards the US, right? And uh, so these countries are holding US dollars as reserves and so on. What happens in the '60s, uh, curiously, is that the US productivity starts going down. Late '60s, right? They're spending a lot of money. They've already spent a lot of money on the Vietnam War. Uh, there's oil price shock as well that comes into play, and U.S. inflation is at all-time high. Whereas Europe is doing fantastically well now. They have outgrown, uh, you know, in terms of uh, GDP growth percentage, Europe is doing much better than the U.S. And they've realized, wait, we're getting into some kind of scam here, right? So they've started demanding their gold back. They start sending U.S. dollars. to the us whatever they were holding as reserves and say we'll we'll get our dollar back right and remember the dollar was always fully convertible to gold right right and uh, the us does this plays along for a few years and then it realizes that it's going to run out of its gold if it keeps honoring its obligations so 1971 famously nixon president nixon says we no longer are going to honor the the holy kind of tie between us dollar and uh, the gold right so this means that The United States still continued to own whatever gold it did. Yes, but that was just an asset for them. Yeah, so it it just dealing the two currencies. I mean, it uh, after the shock, it took a while for it to implement and so on. But it basically dealing uh, currency from gold. 
and the rest of Europe was now basically stuck with US dollars, whether they liked it or not, and they couldn't convert it to gold. <laughs> and so now, what drove the value of the dollar? I mean. Yeah. It has value because people believe it has value? Yes. So, after the Bretton Woods went, uh, we entered into the new era of fiat money. And uh, the only thing that gives value to a currency is how much of that currency is already in circulation. <laughs> okay. And that's the system that we follow? That's the today? system we follow until today. I mean, there have been small changes and so on, but n- nothing worth getting into. So, this is broadly how exchange rate arrangements evolved. So, simultaneously what happened, of course, getting to the main topic at hand was that every country now had a free floating exchange rate with the US dollar. Right? The, all the pegs were broken. And it said, let the market decide uh, what is the value of one currency versus the value of another currency. And this is largely based on trade. Okay. So if I look at an Indian currency note today, even this is fiat money, right? Right. So I think uh, it says that there's a signed message by the governor of the RBI saying that I promise to pay the bearer uh, the sum of 500 rupees, if you have a 500 rupee note. Right. So our money is backed by the RBI. Yeah. And so is this why... This was one of the problems with demonetization, right? That this is a promise made by the uh, Reserve Bank of India to each note holder. Yes. And overnight, they just said, your rights are invalid. Yes. <laughs> and and in fact, I mean, uh, if, if you take a dollar bill from before the 70s, it actually said, I promise to pay the bearer the sum of whatever, $1 in gold. Okay. And they erased that in gold part. Once the the tie was broken. And the 1971 Nixon shock was the demonetization of the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) But he delinked rather than devalued, right? Here it was an out and out devalue. Yeah. But it it was, again, a break of promise. Because it said, you know, I will give you gold in return for every dollar you give me. And here it said that, okay, your note is valid and you can use it to buy you know, goods and services. And both times that kind of promises were broken. (laughs) Right. And when you have extreme loss of faith in your reserve bank, you end up with a situation like Zimbabwe, right? Yeah. Where you don't uh, believe the promise that is written on the note. Yeah. And therefore the value of it just goes for a toss. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the value of it goes for a toss for a number of reasons. But ultimately there is a faith now. In fiat money is all about faith. Do you have belief in that currency? And uh, if not, yeah, as you said, pe- people will not be willing to accept that currency or you have to pay a higher premium for the risk that person is willing to take uh, when he's accepting your currency. So Anupam, one question that I have is what is this basket of currencies when we say, you know, the renminbi is going to be uh, included in this basket of currencies? What does it even mean? Right. So a uh, couple of meanings. Let's take the most official one first. The IMF has its own form of an international currency, and this is called an SDR, or a Special Drawing Rights. Uh, it's basically a form of you know, uh, debt obligations for different countries. So if you want to borrow, you have this much drawing right from the, this thing. Now, the SDR's currency, right, because it doesn't actually mint, it's not part of a government, etc., it's just based on a basket of currencies. And these are eight of the biggest kind of uh, uh, nation's currencies. So it, it would have the US dollar, the pound, uh, now the euro, the yen, Japanese yen, and Australian dollar, Canadian dollar, and so on. Right? So uh, the, the eight most frequently traded currencies, you take a weighted average of those things based on how much trade actually happens with those currencies. And the SDR is kind of uh, uh, based on that. 
Now, China wanted to be part of this SDR, right? And uh, so it, it basically wanted to be in that basket of currencies, which will determine the exchange rate of uh, the, the, or the value of the SDR, IMF size SDR. Why did China want to do this is probably the, your next question. Yeah. If I can what benefits that. does China get or what, why shouldn't we be a part of this SDR? Uh, you can wish for it. But, <laughs> um, every, every country holds, as we spoke about Forex reserves, foreign exchange reserves, right? Uh, you can hold it uh, partly in gold, uh, which is always a small part of it. Large part of it will be in US dollars, but you can also hold other currencies. So you'll hold, you know, uh, the pound as well uh, or the euro, right? And countries almost obligatorily also hold the SDR because they are members of the IMF. And if they hold the SDR, that means that they are also holding this basket of currencies, which means they are holding China's currency, which means there's a demand for the currency, which is what they want. In, in against very simplified terms. Okay, so if you hold the SDR, then there is more demand for your currency or is that an oversimplification? If you hold the SDR, that means there's more demand for the currencies on which the SDR is based on. Can we ever hope for the rupee? No. <laughs> and I, 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 right now, it's not in our best interest to do so either. Why We not? shouldn't care about it. Okay. I mean, again, it might indirectly lead to an appreciation of the rupee and so on. But uh, firstly, the... If India's Indian rupee is included in the SDR, it'll be such a small percentage because it it's based on you know volume of trade that happens, and India's trade is negligible in terms of you know how much trade happens in Indian rupee, right? Because even if we trade with Sri Lanka, a lot of times we uh, use dollars instead, right? So in terms of that, ours will be a negligible percentage. Okay, so I have a related question. When we say uh, something like. Uh, Iran has decided it, it, uh, that we are allowed to buy oil in Indian rupees. What does that mean? So that is great for us, right? Uh, if we can actually, as I was saying earlier, with most countries that we trade in, we'll have to first exchange the rupees into dollars and uh, then, you know, buy that product from that country by giving those dollars. But if a country actually decide to accept Indian rupees as it is, it's great for us because we don't lose out on the transaction cost of exchanging your currency to another currency, right? So we pay in Indian rupees, it's great for us, we don't then care about exchange rate fluctuations and so on, first. The second is, that's what, the de then there's direct demand for your currency. So your the value of your currency naturally kind of appreciates, uh, which again, if you're importing a lot, it's not a bad thing, right? So then uh, that's, that, that'll also kind of help us indirectly. So Anupam, uh, tying this back up to the 68 rupees to the dollar, right. uh, so you walked us through a variety of exchange rate mechanisms that humanity has followed over the last 200 years at least, if not older. And uh, you also talked to us about what are the various drivers that cause uh, an exchange rate to change or an exchange rate to become worse. Uh, and uh, so that's trade, you have um, inflation that's happening domestically, inflation that's happening uh, in the other country, uh, the difference in interest rates between the, you know, two countries or so. Okay. So all of these that color it, but uh, at the end, just reiterate for our uh, listeners, what does the 68 rupee to the dollar mean for India today and whether they should be okay with it? Uh, I would just say that it's not time to panic yet. We have to watch how things go in the coming future. If the US, in fact, increases its uh, interest rate and we 
the rupee depreciates further i think then there would be a slight moment of panic because uh, we would lose out on a lot of fiis coming into the country the, and and that could mean trouble for us in the future but as of now it's still not time to panic and as i said the rbi still has about uh, 400 billion reserves to play with uh not that all of it can be spent on this but again there can be a slight defense of the rupee there uh and it, it i should also say that you know the rbi would be wise not to try and put up too big a fight against the market forces because uh even though it's the biggest player in the market it would still lose so uh the rbi should concentrate on just tiding over the volatility but if it goes up to 70 72 i i think we should also be fine with that what we should be concentrating on is uh, developing our industries and developing our export mechanism in a better way so that we can take advantage of the devalued rupee this is something that most countries hope for a devaluation uh, and uh, so yeah if we actually end up removing all the barriers and hurdles for exporting then i think we we can end up uh, taking advantage of uh, the devalued rupee so a genuine make in india program genuine reform in labor land and other things can help us take advantage of the weak rupee yeah things that we'll never see in our lifetime <laughs> <laughs> on that super optimistic note thank you so much anupam for joining us today on the pragati podcast thank you it was my pleasure and that's the show this week thank you for staying with us till the end if you have any questions or comments for us or for anupam do write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com and we'll feature your questions in a future episode. Get over to thinkpragati.com to read about how India is changing the world. You can subscribe to the Pragati Podcast on the IVM Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts from. We are there everywhere. He bends down to test the warm water for his bath. He comes here to quench his thirst for a hot shower and some podcasts. You can witness how he enjoys having other people talk about cool stuff in his bathroom. Indeed, it helps him with his loneliness. You can find more of his pieces on ivmpodcast.com. Your one-stop destination where you can check out the coolest Indian podcasts. Happy listening.